0: inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know ask katie anything hey everybody welcome back to another episode of ask katie anything i am your host and licensed therapist uh katie morton if you don't know who i am i've been on youtube for a really long time making educational mental health content and i am glad you're here Uh, Also, we have a little visitor below, my puppy Roxy. We have a little pad behind us that she can lay on while Sean and I record our podcast. And she has been, she's just hanging out with us. She's like, now's the time when mom and I record a podcast. You're very popular. Anyway. Let's jump into today's questions because as always, they are good ones. Today, I think I pulled nine. Let me double check that number for you. Yeah, we have nine questions and they're all over the place. You know, as always, there's there's a bunch of different topics that we're going to cover. Things with regard to like trauma, uh, talking to yourself. Is that weird? Does that make you crazy? Emotional abuse, uh, thought stopping, all sorts of stuff. So let's just jump into it. Question number one is, is it "quote unquote" normal to constantly talk to yourself? Basically, whenever I'm alone, I'll be having full-on conversations out loud to myself. I feel like half the time it's just maladaptive daydreaming, and I'll be talking about something that I need or want to talk about but can't actually say it. And I'll give myself advice or just respond as if it was them saying it, like role-playing a conversation. If that makes sense, not sure it does. Um, not sure it does, and it might sound a bit odd. But thanks, Katie. Have a lovely day. It. Totally makes sense. And no, it's not weird. Um, I was curious when I first started reading this question. I was like, I wonder if they struggle with maladaptive daydreaming. If those of you out there heard that and were like, what does that mean? Maladaptive daydreaming is when we prefer to be in our daydreams for periods of time rather than our real life. And that's why it's kind of maladaptive. It's not really good for us, but it's kind of a low form of dissociation. I know that not everybody agrees with this, but I like to think of dissociation as like a spectrum. And on the like beginning stages of it is where maladaptive daydreaming lies. And so that's what that what we're talking about there. And talking to yourself, I think, is a very normal experience. I know a lot of us, are, I don't know, I guess not us. It's like society thinks that talking to yourself means you have schizophrenia because you think you're talking to someone else. And I'm really here to tell you that we all say things to ourselves when we're alone in our house. I mean, I talk to my dog a lot. And she can't talk back. Um, so it's really me having a conversation with myself, you know, but if we find that that's the only way. So here's where I would caution you. So, yes, it's normal. We can have conversations like I do this a lot. I don't know if anybody else does this where I just almost narrate what's happening or like make exclamations about things that come across. Like if I'm in my house doing stuff and I'm like, okay, so now I'm gonna do the laundry, putting the laundry in and then, oh yeah, I gotta go unload the dishwasher, right? Like I'm just talking to myself about the things that I'm going to do like a narrator. But there's also times I'm like, Ooh, didn't see that there. Oh, don't forget to do such like, it's this weird, it, it's like a half conversation. And so I think everybody does that. And if someone tells you that they, they don't, I would assume they're probably lying. <laughs> I feel like it's very normal to talk to yourself in that way. But and I always also encourage you to role play conversations. So if that's helping you, I encourage it. But the way what I would caution people against or or be aware of where it might sway into maybe dangerous space or unhealthy space is if we find ourselves instead of engaging in conversations with other people, we're only doing them with ourselves, meaning that some of those conversations that might be tricky or things that we want to say to someone and we practice it on our own. If that's the only way we ever say those things and we never find ourselves at least attempting to do it out with the person in public, then I feel like it's not really benefiting you. And I would let your therapist know. Again, it's not that the talking to yourself is the problem. The problem is that's the only way we're able to do it. And I would want to dig into why that's happening and what we can do to maybe help overcome that. And there was a comment on this, like a a question to add on to it. And I had to pare it down for length, just FYI. But the question is, it says, what if you feel like you're talking to yourself rather than another person when you are supposedly with a good friend? I have a friend who notices when I'm feeling very bad, but he doesn't really seem to care at all. I would argue that's not a very good friend, but Anyways, let's continue. It says, I know you shouldn't dump all of your problems on your friends, and I wouldn't do this because my mother is like this, but it seems like he doesn't even care about me being in a bad place. When he asks me how I'm doing, I don't want to lie and say I'm fine. I have to pretend so much in life it's exhausting, but when he always makes it about himself, when I share I'm hurt, I'm hurting, it's harmful to me. Totally fair. And that sounds potentially like some narcissistic behavior. But again, we'll dig into it. It Says, I'm glad that he's happy and enjoys his life. And I don't envy him. He might want you to. But I feel like he dismisses my feelings and experiences by doing this all of the time. Maybe I should stop spending that much time with him. I think so. And only see him as a friend for having some fun. Question mark? He doesn't seem to understand mental health issues, or maybe he just doesn't care about me, and it's exhausting spending time with him when he doesn't even try to be a good friend or understand. Do you have uh, do you have to communicate stuff like this? I feel like being supportive or at least caring a little bit should be a basic thing in good friendships. You are correct. Being supportive and caring about another person isn't something you should have to ask for in a relationship. You could. For the sake of communication and giving someone an opportunity to to show us that they can rise to that occasion, is you know you could let them know like hey you know sometimes when I bring things up and tell you I'm having a tough time I kind of feel dismissed and it would just be helpful if you just hear me out and just say yeah that must be hard that's all I need I don't need answers I don't need you to fix anything I just need you to hear me do you know what I mean We should be able to say that to friends and not have them get offended shut down lash out any of that but I based on what you told me and again i'm only hearing your perspective and your side of the story but this person sounds like an asshole and i probably wouldn't want to spend that much more time with them because a real friend i mean they notice when you feel bad and so they should i'm sure they prompt you or maybe you start talking like asking how you are and sure you don't have to dump all of your problems on your friends but you should feel free to like share and then they should support and then they share and then you support and that's how friendships work and so that just does not sound like a good friend, doesn't sound like a good friendship. Either way, it's not working. You could tell them that it's not working and tell them like what you would prefer to change, you know, in a small way, like, hey, sometimes I just don't feel really heard or understood and see if they rise to the occasion. Or I just probably would not spend time with this friend at all because they don't really sound like much fun and they don't sound like they're very nice. And to me, that just seems like an unnecessary relationship at this point, And it's doing more harm than good. And I'm sorry that they're doing that. That's so rude. Ugh! sometimes people are just so frustrating. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hello, Katie, how do you treat trauma that you don't remember? This is a great question. I can hardly remember my childhood. but Sometimes I have emotional flashbacks in response to certain questions in therapy. Without pictures or sounds, oh, oh without pictures or sounds, only the feelings of fear, despair, helplessness, and so on. I also dissociate a lot when that happens. It probably feels overwhelming, I understand. Is it possible to treat this in trauma therapy? Yes. There are no concrete situations that we could work on, only the feelings. Or is trauma therapy not possible in this case? Thank you for everything you do. Have a nice day. You as well. I hope you have a wonderful day. Now, I uh, had talked with my good friend, Dr. Alex Altman. I think we, it was in one of our most, most recent videos on my channel, which I think it came out in like a month or two ago, probably in August. But I did some videos with, uh, she's a trauma specialist, she's a psychologist, and I love her very dearly. And the truth about trauma is that a lot of times we don't have full memory, or we don't have memory at all. And what we really work on then is understanding and processing slash managing what we do remember. These can be body memories, so sensations in our body, or in this person's case, It's emotional flashback. So it's more uh, identifying and understanding those emotions and where they arise from and helping us find better ways to manage them so that we don't become overwhelmed or dysregulated by them. So there's no need to think that you cannot work through it or that you can't process a trauma because you don't have memories of it. A lot of us don't have memories of them. And I mean, in some ways, it's like protective. I would assume that the lack of memories is due to dissociation or due to just our system being completely overwhelmed and it's not able to really make sense. That's why a lot of trauma memories can be like fragmented. And so anyways, just know that a lot of people don't have memories of their traumas and you don't have to have those memories in order to work through it and heal. In your case, we're just going to focus a lot on the emotional flashbacks and grounding techniques to keep us from dissociating. And yeah, it'll get better. So hang in there. And yeah, if you can also, if there are any like bodily responses that you feel, like maybe your stomach turns or your neck gets really tight, let your therapist know about that as well. Because that's, again, it's all helpful information and part of that healing process. Okay, let's move on to question three. It says, hey, everyone, I hope you're doing well. Thank you. You too. It says, could you talk a bit more about emotional abuse? Of course. A few months ago, I realized that I was emotionally abused for six years during my teenage years. As I'm trying to deal with it, I came over a a few questions. How can you deal? This is number one. How can you deal with your own belief and with people that think it wasn't that bad? So yourself and others thinking it wasn't that bad. Yeah, that's a rough one. The abuser never actually hurt you. So, you know, people think that like they didn't physically hurt you. So what's your problem? And another question, how can I deal with the fact that my mom could scream at me for five hours straight and then say that she only wants what's best for me? Ooh, that like gaslighting. It's, and it, it's not traditional gaslighting in the way that we talk about like telling you that you remember things wrong. It's almost like it, it's too, too quick of a switch that it's almost like we're her saying that she only wants what's best for you, that she thinks what she's doing is best for you and that's like a mind fuckery. Does that make sense? So it's in that way, it's gaslighting. Okay. And then how can I put those two sides in one picture? Yeah, like your mom yelling for five hours and then yeah, it says thanks for all your videos. Um, they've helped me through a lot in my recovery. I'm so glad. Now this is a great question. And emotional abuse is is hard. It, it first of all, abuse is abuse is abuse is abuse. It doesn't matter if it's physical, sexual, emotional, whatever. It happened and we were traumatized by it and probably have symptoms of PTSD or at the very least struggle with anxiety, maybe people pleasing behaviors because of the abuse and emotional abuse because you can't see it like meaning that it nothing happened to us physically like sexual abuse and physical abuse. Often there are marks and bruises and we have to go to the hospital for things and get checked out and it can feel more real and tangible because of that. However just because you can't see something a lot of abuse is quiet right even even with the person saying that they would shout at them for five hours straight some emotional abuse is when parents just aren't there be like emotional neglect when they pretty much tell us to sit down shut up and don't want to talk about things and so it can be difficult when we can't see it we don't feel it we feel it emotionally to not invalidate and minimize what took place and it sucks you guys and I know it's really hard but unfortunately emotional abuse is super common especially you know for parents who have their own issues and don't know how to manage their or regulate rather their own responses and reactions to life and so they take it out on their children or maybe that's how they were brought up and they think that it's okay for some ungodly reason um okay let's answer the questions so the how do you deal with your own belief you have to we have to start fighting back with our therapist. With facts and information to prove slowly, or it's not even prove. I don't even like that word. It's more like to fight back against that falsely held belief that it wasn't that bad. I survived it. So I'm okay. Like all that minimizing thoughts and behaviors and things that we can do to invalidate our, our abuse. Start stacking those facts and then also just notice when you're thinking thoughts that are doing those things like minimizing and validating. Can we notice that and can we pick one of those facts and argue back with it? Like when you have that automatic thought that's like, yeah, but, you know, other people's abuse was worse. Mine's not that bad. It wasn't. I'm just making it to be a big deal. I want you in that moment to be like, uh-uh, stop. No, I heard from Katie on the podcast that emotional abuse is actually very painful and is a real form of abuse. So we do know that. And a parent yelling at their child for five hours straight is emotional abuse. Okay? Now, I know it's going to be more than that one time stopping the thought, arguing back. It's going to take some effort because this almost brainwashing that happened during the abuse right in the brain i call it brainwashing because we can do it to ourselves someone else can do it to us but either way we've come out of it thinking that it wasn't that big of a deal and maybe we're overreacting and we 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 can logically know oh that's not true but we're going to have to slowly unlearn that and that takes noticing those thoughts and arguing back with facts so stack your facts and then challenge some of those thoughts that feed into that like false belief that it wasn't that big of a deal um you know, challenge it with some of those facts and hopefully that will help. And then how do I deal with the fact that my mom could scream at me and then say she wants what's best for me? It's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of grieving that's going to need to happen. And what I mean by that is when we have a parent who's abusive, we can form what's called a trauma bond to them because we're supposed to be able to turn to our, uh, Our caretakers like our mother father grandma grandpa whoever we're supposed to be able to turn to them for support and love when we are in pain and something happens to us right but what if those people are actually the ones that are causing the pain it can be like a total mindfuck and it can be really complicated and confusing for us to tease it out and make sense of it. And we can be like, no, but they're the ones that would want to protect us. Why would they want to hurt me? Ooh, maybe it's not as bad. Maybe this is what parenting is like, right? And we can do that. And so we can bond with them as a way to prevent them from continuing to harm us. If we're like, oh, maybe I must've caused it, right? We've all had thoughts like that. If we've been traumatized, it seems to be very common that we'll think I must've done something to make mom upset. That's why she lashed out at me. Or she said it was my fault that she yelled and told me not to make her do that again, which is so abusive and such a gaslighting uh, statement. But we'll think that then we have to do things just right. Will people please and fawn as a way to prevent the abuse from continuing? And so we can form this bond with our abuser as essentially as a way to protect ourselves. And I have videos about these and you can watch them for more you know, in-depth de- in information. But we're going to have to acknowledge what our mom's able to give us, which sounds like not, maybe not that much. And acknowledge what it is we wish she could give us and grieve that difference. I know I kind of got off topic there for a minute. I apologize. Because this like, essentially gaslighting behavior that she's doing, doing one thing and then acting in another way as if the other thing didn't even happen, like the screaming never took place. It's very invalidating and very confusing. We have to recognize where our mom is at. And what she's really capable of doing, because we cannot make other people change. That kind of goes back to that, like people pleasing and fawning. We can think that if we act a certain way, they'll act in a certain way. And that is not the case. We can't control other people. Unfortunately, we can't make them be better to us. We just can't do any of that. That's just not, that's just not how it works. Unfortunately, can't control anybody else, can't make people do better. They have to want it for themselves. And so, the it is hard to grieve. I will be I will be truthful with you. It's not an easy thing to do, but making those lists of what they're able to give versus what you would want from them can can be really eye opening to see how different they are, or maybe how close they are. Some for some of my patients, they're like, "Oh, I thought it was really shit, but it's actually just the fact that she can't show up for me when it comes to this stuff." And good thing I have you know my two best friends to do that, or or my dad, or another my brother, you know something like that. And so make those lists and, and allow yourself to be mad about it, allow yourself to, to be sad about it, to want to like wish that it could be better. Like let yourself go through that grief period because it's on that other side of it that we're able to deal with the fact that our mom acts like that, that she will scream and then she'll be like, but I want what's best for you. And you're like, those two are not the same. That doesn't make any sense, right? And if, if we've been able to kind of grieve it, we can in those moments hopefully we're able to remove ourselves from situations so it doesn't happen as ever. But if we're in that situation, we can remove ourselves from it and be like, yeah, it sucks that, that that's how mom is. That, you know, it sucks. That she thinks that that's how she can talk to me, you know? And we can have this kind of like, instead of allowing ourselves to, to feel it again and again and be abused again and again, we're able to like remove ourselves and have some perspective on it and be like, yeah, mom can't be a good mom. And she's just not able to. So that sucks, you know, and that grief is hard. And again, remove yourself from the situation if you're able, like, please move out if you can save up your money, put a plan together or something um, so we can get you out of there. But yeah, those are my thoughts. I hope that that's helpful. I know it's kind of complicated and I know it's a lot of hard work, but I hope that I stayed on uh, on point enough so you got the, you know, oh, I can hear the doggo. Oh, she drinking some water. But at the very least, I hope that that helped you feel validated and heard and understood. And yeah, emotional. I have some videos about the emotional abuse and emotional neglect, too, if you want to watch those. Okay, now, as a comment on this says, as an add on, if you could answer this question, it would be nice. Should you tell your abuser that he or she abused you if this person doesn't even know that that is what he or she did? You don't have to. And I honestly, unless it benefits you as the person who was harmed, if you feel like I need them to know, you can tell them. But I don't, it's not going to change anything and potentially the person could get really defensive or tell you that you're overreacting, like put you down, you know, minimize and validate all that stuff. So they could do that, which could make your own process even like that much harder, but they could also, you know, maybe they say, oh my God, I didn't realize, and that could change their behavior. But again, that's something they'd have to choose. So if you think it would benefit you to... To tell them so that they knew you do it but consider all the ways it could go right and wrong like what's the best case scenario worst case scenario most likely scenario so that you're prepared just because we don't know how people are going to react and you don't have to also just fyi you don't have to tell them because it doesn't actually matter if they like it doesn't the abuse isn't lessened or the amount of abuse isn't lessened or invalidated or minimized or maximized in any way by them knowing, right? Like, it doesn't actually change anything. If you felt traumatized and you felt like it was abusive, then that's just what it is. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. There was another add-on that said, can you also... Can this also lead to trauma and trauma responses? 100%. Emotional abuse, I would argue, is probably one of the most common abuse abusive situations that children can grow up in, and it's the often least reported because it's not something that is seen. Like, a lot of times if children have, like, bruises and stuff. A teacher might call CPS and get it looked into, Or um, and CPS stands for Child Protective Services. And so if there are things that are going on, if there's behaviors to indicate sexual abuse, you know, that's something that we can call and report and try to have looked into, but emotional abuse often goes unseen, therefore unreported. And says, how does that happen? So the question, you know, how can this lead to trauma and trauma responses? Yes. And how does that happen? And how do I figure out if my trigger or out my triggers, if I don't know what sets it off to begin with? You have to be curious about your triggers. I think in general, we think of triggers as like these Uh, specific actions or things that happened in our day. And, ah, it was when that car door slammed, (gasps) I jumped. And that was what it, you know, but it's not always that neat and tidy. I think there are many times when our triggers are actually just emotions and that can be a little bit more complicated or, or tricky to identify. Because for instance, I had a patient who if things were going well for her, if she started to feel really good and hopeful, super triggering. Oh my God. Oh, my God, setting myself up for failure, going to feel really good and excited. And then the rug's going to be pulled out from underneath me because she's never felt secure or safe. Right. So that was the trigger was I felt good. So just do your best to try to be curious about how you could feel or what other things could be triggers. Triggers aren't always these like identifiable things that we can see. They can be things that we feel. They can be uh, any of our senses. Right. So it's like you go through smell, taste, touch, uh, sight, uh, hearing, you know. Whatever it is that we f- that's in our environment and the emotions, right? Because a lot of times that those feelings, like I even had a patient. Uh, this is the last little story I'll share. I had a patient who, if she felt nauseous, I know this sounds really weird, but she got food poisoning once, and it was super triggering because when she was being abused by her uncle as a kid, like that nausea, she would feel sick to her stomach, and she would always tell her mom and tell him, "I don't feel good. I have a tummy ache," and like it didn't change what was happening to her, and so that itself was triggering. So again, just know that it can look and feel in a lot of different ways and everyone's triggers are going to be different. But if we know the last time that it happened or last few times that we overreacted, and I use the term overreacted, not as a judgment, but more as a an indicator, right? If we are overreacting, like reacting out more than the issue itself warrants, that is an important like red flag to be like, hey, Something else is going on here because my reaction is not in line with what happened. And we can think, oh, I don't want to overreact. I think it's great. It's helpful. It's wonderful information. We can take that overreaction and track back and be like, what led up to this? Did I not sleep well? And who did I see that day? And what happened at work? You know, we can think back and more thoroughly figure out what what our triggers are. Okay, now there was another add-on to this and it said, yes, yes. I struggle with putting the bad and nice side of my mother together as well. I know it's not just black and white, but it makes everything so confusing. My mom sexually abused me, and as a result, I started to reject all love and affirmations that she directs at me internally. I never said anything, but I don't like it when she does that. I've distanced myself a lot, but some parts of me still want affection from her. If we are in a different oh, if we were in a different situation. I can't stand her being close to me because of the abuse, but I still crave our relationship. Being comforted and being able to tell a secret and trust and having a mentally stable parent, a hug when needed, asking for advice, etc. Even though I know what she gives me and can offer me is far from what I so desperately need, I still want that relationship to work out. What can I do about that? I feel so torn. I like her as a person, but maybe she just isn't equipped to be a mother. Sometimes I hate her for what she did. And then I want everything to be like it was before the shit show. Loving and hating her so much at the same time is so confusing. Could that be a tra- could that be trauma bonding or is it just a sad little kid inside of me wanting to have a mother? I think it's a little bit of both. That trauma bonding is definitely here. Like even just reading that wanting to be comforted and craving the relationship it go, it's trauma bonding, but it's, I, even more so, I think it's just that inner child of you, that sad little kid wanting to have a mother. And my urge to you would be to find a therapist who can do that inner child work with you and help you find ways to calm and love and care for that child because your mom isn't capable. And I don't mean that to be a hurtful statement. I just mean that to be a factual statement. Your mother was abusive. Mothers who are abusive in any fashion aren't capable of offering our child, our inner child, the love and support that it needs. Can they change and maybe get better if they want to go to therapy and really work on themselves? Sure, but I'll believe it when I see it. And so for now, the safest way for you to actually get that love and support and affection that you're so deeply craving is to find ways to give it to yourself. And I know that sounds so depressing, but I'm here to tell you that it's the healthiest and happiest way for you to receive that love is to give it to yourself. And so I honestly would distance myself from your mother. She sounds very abusive in this hot, cold, uh, being good and happy and then mean and, and abusive. It's just part of that abuse cycle, unfortunately, where we have like, ooh, I hit the microphone, sorry, where we have the event, right? The, the abuse when something actually happens boom that happens then we go into the honeymoon phase which could be when your mom is being really nice being super friendly and then sometimes we have this period of calm where like nothing happens and then we go back into tension building which is when we are just walking on eggshells waiting for the abuse to happen again right or the violent act as they call it usually in the cycle of violence but either way it, it's not safe or healthy for you to be around and i would assume that her being kind Nice person is very few and far in between when it comes to the, all the abuse and the shouting and the sexual abuse and all the stuff that she's probably done over the years. And so really therapy and inner child work is what will help you heal. And I'm sorry you had to go through that Ugh. sucky parents, man. It sucks. Okay, let's move on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie. When I was in high school, I used to thought stop every emotional thought that I had. Ooh, stuff it down, stuff it down. I convinced myself I was emotionless when really all I did was repress everything. I've always tried to use logic and facts to counter my feelings. Ooh, that sounds a lot like, what's that defense mechanism? Um, Intellectualization. It says, I remember any time I would feel an emotion or have a thought that can lead to an emotion, I would say the word stop. In my mind and i would simply stop myself from feeling so i wanted to ask at what point does thought stopping so this isn't necessarily thought stopping but we'll get into this so at what point does it become harmful like it was for me i know that you mention a lot when talking about overthinking or low self-esteem so i wanted to mention the risks of thought stopping if taken too far like me you can become obsessed with logicking your way out of feelings and you can use it as avoid an avoidance technique so that you don't feel painful feelings or if someone is upset, but thinks they're overreacting, they can thought stop because they want to stop being overdramatic when really their feelings are valid and their right to be upset. Thanks, Katie. Okay, this is a great question. And the truth is, so I want to get to the, the real question here. So yeah, at what point does thought stopping be harmful like it was for me? So thought stopping assists us when we have ruminating, unhelpful thoughts. Now, that means that we're thought stopping when we have any uh, thought related to our OCD. Let's say we have obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, when we're in the obsession mode and we're like, oh, my God, I got to go check that again. I got to check. I only check. did I did I turn it off?" Uh, and it, we're like going into that worry, panic, anxiety slash obsession component of OCD Thought stopping can be beneficial there because we can start, we can be putting off doing the compulsion, which we all know is part of like getting out of the OCD. The best way to do it is to stop doing the compulsion. Super uncomfortable, but truly effective. And so thought stopping can benefit us there. Thought stopping can also benefit us when we have these like ruminations, meaning we have these old thoughts we've had a zillion times before and they just put us down and make us feel like shit. Those we want to stop too. They're not helpful. However, What's happening here, I would argue, is not thought stopping. It's emotion stopping. And it's really just emotionally numbing. So it's like anytime an emotion pops up, you're like, absolutely not get back down where you came from. And you're like, and you swallow it and push it. And you do it by distracting and saying, stop, 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 which is using, using like a thought stop technique, but yours is specific to emotions. So it's like, anything that would lead to an emotion is like a no-go because I would assume it maybe felt too scary, too overwhelming or, or anything like that. And I'm here to tell anybody out there who feels like they need to stuff all their emotions down because they're just too much. And if they didn't do that, they'd feel overwhelmed. Emotions don't last for that long. They come in. We feel them if we just allow them to be and be like, yeah, you know, I feel kind of annoyed with that. And that's kind of frustrating. And you know what? I'm also kind of tired. And the day is, today is just, I'm grouchy. I feel irritated, you know, whatever it is. And we let ourselves feel it. And I know that is where people have a tough time. It's like, how do I let myself feel it? Well, we, maybe we scream in our car because we feel angry. I'm going to show anger right now. Maybe I write about it. Get that anger out. Maybe whatever emotion I'm feeling, I talk about it with my spouse or my roommate or my therapist or whatever. We just let it be there. We don't try to turn away from it. That's how we feel it. I know a lot of times therapists will say things like, just sit with that feeling. I'm guilty of saying that. And I apologize. But what we mean with like sit with that feeling is like, don't try to like turn away like it's not there. Like face it head on. Get to know it. Be curious about it especially those emotions that we think are particularly like inappropriate. Like I'm not a huge fan of anger. It feels it feels like a wildfire that can like catch onto other things. It's like out of control and it could like set my whole life on fire. And I think that's because I've actually never allowed myself to just be angry and know that it's okay because it's actually indicative of me being hurt. Spoilers, anger is a secondary emotion protecting us from whatever the primary emotion was. But anyway, long story short is that if I make time in my day which this sounds kind of weird but if I make time in my day to like feel that anger and acknowledge it and like where did it come from and why do I think I'm angry or what happened to cause that do I think you know blah blah blah. just dig in a little bit then it will it will pass then I've learned about it I've allowed myself to feel it and yeah that's really it so when people say sit with your feelings or allow allow that feeling just to come on in and hang around Just know that that's what they mean. And it can be really helpful. And yes, prevent us from logicing our way. Because this really just sounds like instead of calling it thought stopping, it's either intellectualization or like emotion stopping. But anyway, I hope that that was helpful. And thank you for your question. That's it was really great question. Okay, let's move on to question number five. This question says, hello, Katie. I have started seeing a new trauma therapist and have seen her for a month. I get on well with her. And although I'm struggling to open up, she has been really reassuring me, which is what I need to hear. The problem is that I have the urge to push her away. I'm really struggling with it because I've seen a lot of counselors and psychotherapists before, and this feeling hasn't happened. I do have BPD, there we go, and fear of abandonment, as well as trust issues, and I worry that she will not want to carry on with my appointments if I tell her some of the bad things. Since when are those bad things? I feel like that's a lot of judgment right there. Just throwing it out there, pushing back a little bit. Okay. How do I deal with this? When you have treated clients, what small signs do you spot that show you that they are pushing you away? I'm always going to go to my appointments um, and won't miss any because of this. But I'm wondering if I already am showing signs subconsciously without even knowing. Thanks for all that you do. Of course, um, I mean, patients push me away by lying, by not being as forthcoming, by not making as much eye contact. There's a ton of ways that I would know if a patient is kind of like withdrawing from me. Um, And a lot of it just has to do with like the emotional withdrawal, right? It's not so much the physical, like you said, you're going to go to your appointments, but she might even notice like a closed off body language is always an like, it's not indicative at the beginning. It's usually because patients, you know, don't really trust you yet and they're getting to know you, which is understandable. But if they've already felt open and sitting in your office comfortably and now they're going back to this, not that I'd assume it's them pulling away, but I'd be curious about it. I'd want to know why that's happening and what's going on for them and maybe maybe it's something else outside of therapy or maybe it's something in therapy i would ask questions and find out wait till they let me know um but yeah it's definitely your bpd flaring up and i think i mean hopefully your therapist is well equipped to handle diagnoses such as those you know the the borderline personality disorder because it's not a bad thing it's just a mental illness that you're struggling it's a personal i don't even like that it's called a personality disorder by the way but borderline is just something that we're going to have to manage and the best thing you can do is recognize you know what's setting off some of those abandonment issues or trust issues what is it that worries you about her like letting her in and continuing to let her in are you thinking like i'll never survive it if she leaves or it sounds like you are thinking that she's just going to leave you anyways like let her know about this and what's coming up for you if you can at the very least try to write or leave a voicemail or email or something to let her know that this is happening for you because number one it's super common And number two, she can help you work through it. That's what you're in therapy for to begin with. And so, yeah, I hope that answers all your questions. Okay, there was a comment to add on. It says, great question. As an add-on, sometimes I'm open with my therapist and sometimes I'm just so damn afraid of her. She does nothing to deserve my fear. Why is this? Now, this is interesting and there are probably two reasons this could happen and why we're so afraid of our therapist. Number one, kind of going back to that first question or the first, yeah, the first portion of the question when the person's afraid, it's like that attachment-based stuff, that can make seeing a therapist hard. And we can get really scared, right? We can be afraid of them because we worry about them leaving and what that could do to us emotionally, right? So there's that. The second component, and these could both happen at the same time, by the way. The second is that therapy is just this weird place where we go to talk about our emotions and feelings and often tell our therapist things that we wouldn't tell anybody else. And that kind of vulnerability, ooh, can shut us down. We can... Want to push them away, and that's why we can be afraid of them, and sometimes be open, and sometimes be afraid. I would be sus- like I'd be suspicious and have questions. I'd be a detective to see if you feel more afraid of her, like during or after you've shared something a little bit more intimate than normal. You know, I, I wonder if there's a correlation there because I would suspect that there is. Okay. Um Another add-on question says, I was recently diagnosed with CPTSD or complex PTSD, and my therapist recommended EMDR, stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. I have a video about it if you want to learn more. I would love to try this. However, there are two sides of myself that are always at war with each other. One side says that I can't trust her, and I'm probably exaggerating the trauma and need to get over myself. Oh, trauma voice is so wonderful. It's always shame-filled, embarrassment-filled. It's like, you're overreacting. You're not. here to tell you you're not on the other side, wants to divulge everything and to heal and not let my past invade my present and control my future. How do I get past this? Let her know this is going on. That's what I would tell her. Because these two sides that are at war are important. It's going to tell her what your self-talk is about the trauma and that you think you're exaggerating it, you're making it, You're overreacting, making this into a bigger deal than it needs to be. All of that is really helpful because she's going to need to know what what's going on in your head and to make you feel the way you're feeling. And then the wanting to divulge everything is that part of you that's like, I, I feel like shit and I don't want to feel like shit anymore. And if I was your therapist, I would work to better understand that part of you and work to support that part of you so that we can get you to open up more. Because by digging into even the other side where it's like, I can't trust that person, I'm probably exaggerating. If I can dig into that side and kind of figure out what the root of that is, right? Is it that... We're afraid that we'll finally open up about everything and they'll tell us it wasn't that bad. Are we afraid we're going to be invalidated again, you know, or is it admitting that it actually was trauma and having someone validate it is maybe more than we can handle? Do we feel like that's, you're like, oh no, now it's real. You know, I don't know where it's coming from, but I'd be curious about that because I feel like in there is an answer as to, you know, why this happened and how we get past it. Does that make sense? Sometimes just knowing more about it and telling our therapist that we're having this kind of battle is really helpful. Now, there is another follow up on this that I have a similar problem. I think about running away in session when talking about difficult stuff, like closing my notebook when I have online therapy or walking out of the room when being in the office with my therapist of two years. It's more like a subtle thought than something that I act on, but it just feels safer. If I have this option to escape when my trauma gets to be too much to deal with, why do I feel this way? I've noticed that running away is something that I've done my entire life. I used to be that way too, by the way. We'll dig into this. In romantic relationships, I leave before we start to date seriously. In friendships, I have a fight plan in the back of my head and want to withdraw myself so that I can't get hurt by them as I think they're going to leave me first or aren't interested in me. When a conflict arises in a situation, I'm out on my way. When being confronted with a direct trauma trigger, I flighted as well. But my trauma and trauma triggers are normally the only time where I mostly dissociate and rarely run away. Oh, trauma pushes you more into into freeze. Interesting. Probably because you're already overwhelmed, your resilience isn't as great in that area of your life. If running away is my go-to defense mechanism that I'm prone to in all different aspects of my life why didn't i run away when i got myself into an abusive situation i was just a teenager and it was more or less there voluntarily and just i hate that word just but they put in here just Got exposed to the sexual violence this way again and again, without force or coercion, probably because I trusted my parent and was overly naive. Leaving the situation didn't even cross my mind at the time of the abuse. I'm not sure if I may have dissociated, probably. I don't have any clues of that, but while I know what happened, I don't remember the specific situations. What are the signs that I dissociated when I don't remember it? I usually know when I dissociate now and remember most of that. So how how do I stop blaming myself for not leaving when I could have safely done so? And why am I always on the run anyways? Could it be connected to my overly emotional and self-involved mother? Ooh, and a shorter period of emotional neglect. My mother was in the hospital a few times for a while when I was a small kid as well. Could all of that have had an impact on this instinct to run away? Running away is like our instinct, right? It's part of our fight, flight, freeze, and fawn response. So we can do it automatically when we feel overwhelmed or super stressed out. And so, of course, this could all have had an impact on you. I think running away in your life is easier for you when it doesn't involve your primary caretaker meaning your mother when when our primary caretakers involve us in abuse we we can be very confused like i was talking about earlier it's it's confusing we're supposed to be able to turn to them for love and support and here they're hurting us i don't understand and so we can keep going back hoping that the next time it'll be better it'll be different they'll give us the love that we want and need so desperately only to be abused again right and i know logical brain part of us is like well why did i go back like it had already happened it happened a few times and i just kept going back like an idiot no you kept going back like a child who needed support and needed connection and needed protection and we didn't know any other person or way to get it and even though we weren't getting it we kept going back hoping that we would that's just being a child and i'm sorry that you went through that but in other parts of your life, probably because you were already super stressed out over the abuse that you were sustaining, you run away. And we run away as a way to protect ourselves, right? It's that flight because you're like, well, if we don't get too close, then they can't leave me and then I won't be wounded again. So in dating, I'm just going to leave before anything gets too, you know, too serious or even serious at all. And then therapy, the same thing. You're like, I'm going to run away before this gets to be too deep and I feel too vulnerable and too overwhelmed. And it's very common, this like wanting to run away and that uh, that sensation to that it's that it's never going to be okay and we're never going to be safe, right? So my only choice is to run when I feel overwhelmed. Now, this can all be healed through trauma therapy and building that resilient zone or what I, someone mentioned this to me and I was like, oh yeah, some therapists do call it that window of tolerance. We want to open that window wider and wider or Build that resilient zone to be bigger and bigger, and all that really means is that we want to get us to a point where things in our life aren't so triggering that we are pushed into fight, flight, or freeze. Right? Depending on what your your knee jerk reaction is, but we don't want to be running away so much. We also don't want to be dissociating so much. We want to be able to have this zone where life can throw its upset things, upsetting things at us, and we can weather it. We can move through it. We have tools we have support and you know we have those important resources and yeah i hope that answered your question so it's like why am i always um on the run it's protective um and could you be connected to your overly emotional self-involved mother um oh it could be connected to that yes i think what what happened with your mom is definitely it was neglect emotional neglect and, and that's abuse and so it's it's that abusive, it's that trauma response. And so, yeah, I hope that that helps. And I hope it clears it up just a little bit. Let's move on to question number six. And it says, hey, Katie, how can I get more comfortable again with social contacts after a year and a half of the pandemic? This is a great question. I've always been a highly introverted person with a rather limited need for close social relations. In principle, I'm very okay with being that way not least because I see the ensuing strengths. For instance, it's fairly easy for me to adjust to social distancing. But now I see that social distancing has reinforced my natural introverted tendencies to a point where I start to feel uncomfortable about their present extent. Do you have any suggestions on how to reverse this development? Oh my God, I've heard this from so many people, friends, family, and community members alike. A lot of you are telling me that you're you're loving the fact that things are shut down or that you have to be socially distant, but you're also hating it because you can fi- feel yourself like withdraw inward, like too much. And so the truth is little by little exposure, we have to expose ourselves. And I know this sounds crazy, but it's like, it doesn't mean like run up to a stranger and don't abide by the distance rules or like respect your space. But it does mean that If you had some people that you did see or family or or some friends or coworkers, or people that you're okay with seeing or that feel okay and not okay in the way of like, I want to withdraw, okay in the way of like COVID safety, you know, if you're very concerned about that, if you feel okay, we're going to have to expose ourselves to those people. So I'd encourage you to reach out to some of those social contacts that you used to see before the pandemic and check in with them, make a point to get together and we're going to have to expose ourselves to it. Little by little. And it might help if you watch my video about exposure therapy. I talk about like the hierarchy and building that and having the most important component of exposure therapy is having some resources up front that soothe our nervous system down. Meaning, when we're going to go and expose ourselves to the thing that's scary, even if it's just a little bit, how do we come out of that and soothe? This could be anything like calling your therapist or a good friend, going for a walk, petting an animal, journaling, doing an impulse log. The, the options are endless, painting our fingernails, right? We can do any kind of distraction, coping, whatever, just to bring our system down. So we're like, ah, I'm okay, right? We're trying to get us there. So as we expose, we need to have those resources to pull, to calm us down again. And then we'll get closer and closer to doing things that are more and more stressful while again, utilizing those resources. So we don't get overwhelmed. And it's that slow exposure and kind of in the way that we were even though it kind of happened overnight, but also just the slow progression and the change in how we interact with one another and mask wearing and distancing and all that shit that we're dealing with. It it happened little by little and we kind of got accustomed to it little by little. So we have to get unaccustomed to it little by little. So find some safe bubble people that you can hang out with that feel okay health wise for you to do that and expose yourself to it just a little bit. There's a comment on this. I also wonder if feeling uncomfortable whenever people are a little bit too close can be because of the pandemic and social distancing. Yeah, it can. For me, it happens with all people, both strangers and people that I'm close with. It's difficult and uncomfortable to even sit opposite someone at a table or stand close to my friend while looking at each other. I have ADHD and with autistic traits, and I want to remember, I want to remember that I've always felt uncomfortable people being in my personal space. So that's important to note. But I feel like it's gotten worse the past year. It probably has. It definitely ignites my fight flight stress response. Um, Is it normal? And how is it supposed to be? What can we do about it? Another scenario is that I get super stressed when people are walking behind me when I'm out walking. But if they walk in front of me, I'm not bothered by it. Basically, everything that happens behind my back. Could that be a form of hypervigilance? Yes. And due to childhood trauma, it's like you read my mind. Or could it be because of my ADHD and autistic traits or because of something else? Okay. So great questions. Now, again, it's that exposure to those things and the... the uh, it is it is tricky so a couple things so the exposure is going to be the best way to like push back against this and having someone behind you and not liking that in my experience i don't know your whole history but in my experience that is like most of the time that's trauma related because we can't see them they could sneak up on us they could grab us they could do some they're behind us it's we don't feel very safe that way and so yes my guess would be childhood trauma or trauma in general in our life related um so that's why it's really uncomfortable. Now, I don't think that it's due to your ADHD or autistic traits. From from what I know, with um, at least from autistic people, and I have some friends with ADHD. ADHD has a lot more to do with being a like a, a heat-seeking missile for dopamine, trying to find things that keep us interesting, which make or keep us interested, which can make us. To other people seem like we're not interested in them Or we're not focused and we're all over the place I don't really think it has anything to do with like hypervigilance symptoms and for my Autistic people out there I've heard from you that It's more highly we're almost Like HSPs like highly sensitive people Because we're trying to mirror and read People a lot if we're you know trying to like Fit in quote unquote fit in in the way That we feel like we're supposed to and so we could Be like hyper aware Of other people's body language And facial expressions because we're doing our best To try to mimic slash read the scenario even though that's not like it doesn't come naturally to us to do it that way so and obviously everyone's different but i don't believe that that's why that's happening i think that's definitely more trauma related and now there was a final add-on it said yes especially when you're generally not in a great place mentally both my mental uh, health issues and social insecurity got worse during the pandemic and then someone even says like and what if it's not just the pandemic that isolates me from others but mostly my trauma so Yes, our mental, um, when our mental health issues are even worse during the pandemic, I think all of us would agree that our mental health has kind of deteriorated somewhat. And I think that, again, it's engaging with people, like exposing little by little. But in this case, when we're, we're maybe already feeling like shit, is it making sure that when we are doing some of these exposures, that we're doing it with people who are feel-good people? they are people who get us, we can be real with, we, we love being around, because then it's that it's going to be not only good for our soul to connect with that person but also they will be able to understand that what we're doing is kind of this exposure thing and it can be really uncomfortable and we might not be present for, at the beginning until we kind of soothe our system you know we could kind of let them know that what we're doing and i think that that could be you know could be really helpful and then the you know when your trauma is isolating you that's why we need to see a trauma therapist or at least a trauma informed therapist because We don't want our trauma taken over our lives. I know a lot of people were super triggered by the pandemic and a lot of our traumatic or trauma responses came out full force because we've been in our stress response because of the pandemic. And then if we're already in our stress response, because of the trauma, it's like everything was like doubled, right? It was like such an intense, intense reaction. And so if you find that happening, please reach out, please see a therapist, and please get some support so we can overcome any of the PTSD symptoms that might be preventing you from seeing those that you care about. Okay, let's move on to question seven. Let me get a drink of water here. This question says, Hey, Katie, how can I deal with the anxiety of losing my therapist? I know she says she won't leave, but I'm still scared that she will. Is there anything that I can do to conquer that fear? Okay, there's one follow-up on this, but let's just dig into this first. Talk to your therapist about it. Anxiety is what is known as uncontrollable worry, right? And your uncontrollable worry right now is focused on losing your therapist. And we have to let them know that this is happening. I would suspect that it's either borderline personality disorder creeping up, or maybe just some attachment based stuff where we've had, you know, not as great of caretakers, parents, or maybe our mother was just emotionally unavailable. And so we felt very emotionally neglected and we were abused that way. And so we found someone like a therapist who's there, they show up, they're consistent, they, you know, are emotionally connected and that can feel great. And so we can be super, super terrified of ever losing it but we're going to have to dig into where it's coming from for you and why it's coming up now and letting your therapist know is that first step. Yes, I know it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to say, you know, I'm really, I'm worried. I'm going to, I'm going to lose you, right? We can have judgment about that and what that means. But trust me when I tell you, every therapist has heard this. It's something that we're we're pretty well versed in dealing with because attachments everywhere. If you guys haven't realized that yet, attachment is everywhere. It affects us in so many ways. And we all have our issues and worries about losing a person in our life or a therapist. And the more we can do to figure out where it's coming from and what the what the actual worry is, because it's not just that we're going to lose them. It's that like I'm unlovable or no one's ever going to be there for me. We have some other deeply rooted beliefs that we got to get to. But the start again is to tell your therapist this is coming up for you and then be curious, not judgmental about what's going on and why this came up. Now, a comment on this that I feel the same way. I recently started seeing a new therapist after ending things off badly with my old therapist, and I'm afraid that this therapist is abandoning me. I even had a dream that she told me she was going on maternity leave. How can I deal with this, especially if my therapist is young and it is possible that she could go on maternity leave? Okay. Talk to her about it and better understand, again, where it's coming from. Maternity leave, uh, trust me, for I can't tell you how many my patients have asked, like, are you planning on having kids? Like all the time. I think because they knew I was in like that age range. And not that it's any of their business because this is therapy, but I'd be like, nope, don't worry. You know, I'm not having a child, not pregnant. So I'll tell you as soon as I know if that happens. But I'd never really told them that I didn't plan on having kids because that's not really what this is about. It's about that abandonment component or that attachment issue and that's what we need to dig into and so it's not so much like how can I deal with this how can I just ignore this or move past this or stuff this down or you know get it out of the way It's more about being curious about why this is coming up for you. Has this happened before? Have you felt abandoned before? Did you have a caretaker or someone in your life who let you down and didn't support you in the way that you really needed? Like all of that's really helpful to dig into. And the best way to dig into that stuff is with your therapist. So I know it's uncomfortable. Maybe this is something that you email in between sessions if you can do that or something you leave on their voicemail or whatever or read from in session just on your notes and your phone. Like whatever you can do to get it out I encourage you to do that because it's more about why it's happening not really the subject of it you know it's not really about your therapist going on maternity leave it's about what that would mean for you and how painful that would be so let's just dig into that I know it's hard I know it's uncomfortable but it will get better that's how we kind of untangle it and then move through it so it's not so overwhelming okay let's move on to question number eight Says, hi, Katie. My question is, what advice would you give to a person who you care about, but not a patient whose trauma includes therapy derived traumas? Oh, so trauma that they got from being in therapy. Several episodes ago, you talked about a therapist that you believe was acting unethically. Similarly, each year, professional boards like social work and medical boards get and substantiate hundreds, if not more, of complaints regarding professionals who broke boundaries or the trust of their patients, the law, etc. Yeah, unfortunately, we're not perfect. I find myself in a similar situation where my therapist told me that she could or would not keep the contents of my therapy confidential. What? What? That's against the law. Wait, says where she issued ultimatums regarding continuing care. What? Where she outright lied to me and or in my health records. I hope you, I hope you press chart. Like, I hope you filed a, a report and like, I hope her license is suspended. Before my most recent therapy experience, I had a therapist who saw me and one of my parents for individual therapy, which I believe was unethical because it constituted a dual relationship. Yes, agreed. And dual relationship for anybody out there wondering what does that mean? It means that if there and I don't know if I'd necessarily call this a dual relationship, maybe, but I'll tell you what a dual relationship is and then we'll dig into this. So a dual relationship is when I, as your therapist, see you at my yoga, at our yoga studio together. So we have that relationship, right? Or even better, let's say that like um, you work at my at my grocery store and I see you every week while I'm checking out, which I know sounds silly and that might not even be that big of a deal, but it's just another relationship that we have therapist patient outside of therapist patient. So if it's like we go to the same yoga studio, we go to the same church. I, um, you know, am a person who shops at the store that you work at and I'm your therapist and I see you in session. That's dual meaning two relationships. And those are things that we as therapists are taught to avoid at all costs unless, and that's why she says, I do not live in a small town where such an arrangement might be necessary. There are reasons if we live in a very small town and there's only like one gym and we're going to see our therapist at the gym, let's say, okay, that's something that needs to be discussed in therapy. Like, hey, you know, and it would be the therapist's job to bring it up, but you could too if your therapist just. I guess isn't good at their job. You could say, you know, Hey, I'm going to see you. Like I would tell a patient, I'd be like, I want you to know that I, you know, let's say it's the gym, even though I never go to the gym and I hate the gym, but let's say I'm like, I work out on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays at this time, roughly. And I just want you to know, I'll be there. I will not act like I know you. I will never indicate in any way that we are friends or know each other in any way you are more than welcome to come up to me and say hi but hopefully you know if i keep a consistent schedule you can just avoid it if you don't even want to see me there right that would be something you kind of arrange and you try to work it out but in small towns sometimes it's impossible to not run into one another and so it's something that's important to discuss but i think it's unethical not because it's a dual relationship when you see a parent and their child i think it's unethical and maybe i i think it's unethical because it, make, it makes it difficult for the therapist to remain on their patient's side, hearing only things from them and not get sullied or have a different perspective based on the things they hear from the other person. It makes it really hard to not mesh the two together. And we really want to keep those things separate. Does that make sense? Like I would, I would be too afraid this is why it's unethical and it's something they discourage, by the way. You should never see one patient and then see a couple together or something like that because that, that one part of the couple that you're seeing individually is always going to be seen by the other member of that couple as being given certain uh i don't know more leeway from you or you're only siding with them because you see them individually right they can see that it's not really fair it's not going to be balanced because you're like more on their side because they see you also and so there's a lot of reasons why we don't do things like that in therapy or as a therapist is because it's just unethical it's like this gray zone where and what i was saying is i'd be afraid if i was this therapist seeing the mother and the child that i would without realizing it because i hear stories from let's say the mother about the child that i would be like oh that's information i have because of this this person and then that could get woven into their session they're like i didn't tell you about that right like what that's like a brain fucking shouldn't be happening and you really as a therapist shouldn't be trying to hold these two separate things like that because we're human too and things are going to get intertwined and it's just not it's just not good it says, needless to say, my prior therapist felt free to share things from my therapy with my mother. That's against the law. I've had it up to here, says indicates at top of forehead, with my struggles with mental illness, but I'm also fed up with getting traumatized while in therapy for all of the things my PTSD. Um, or for all of things in my PTSD. Short of saying to find someone else, try again, keep trying. What would you tell someone like me for whom receiving therapy has become a trauma? Thanks and all my love. Um, and there was a comment on this one, by the way, but I couldn't get it to open up through YouTube. I'm sorry. I don't know why it just kept spinning. No, I tried to reload it. I couldn't even find this question anymore. I don't know what happened. The internet sometimes confuses me. So if you had a question as a follow up, I apologize. I tried to get to it and I couldn't. So let's dig into this a little now in a way i think group therapy like i've talked about hope for recovery a lot especially since you were talking about trauma um hope for recovery is just hope in the number four recovery is a wonderful organization i shared it on my instagram for people to donate they for the month of october they're doing they're, they've opened for, to donations because they run like over a hundred and something groups now and they're all free you guys it's such if you have any money to give a buck or five bucks it's wonderful I would encourage you to support them. They're really great. Now, group therapy might be a way for you to get some support without having this happen. And it could be a way to process through that trauma in a better and safer environment. So that would be my first thought, really, to be honest. not I mean, yes, don't see those therapists again. Also file a complaint. And then maybe look into finding someone else. But the way I would go about it might be a little bit different this time. like the group therapy, I think could be a way for you to work on healing uh, without, again, be putting yourself in a situation like this or being triggered really by something like this. But then if you then I think the second part would be, through word of mouth, try to find someone different because that is the best referral as if a friend or family member or someone in our life, even someone at work, if they talk about it and be like, yeah, I love my therapist. She's great. Blah, blah, blah. Get their name and number and let's see that person. I think the way that we're going to get the referrals could hopefully help us avoid a shitstorm like this. And I'm sorry. I want to apologize for all therapists out there who are trying to do a good thing. I want to apologize for the fact that you had to encounter such an unethical and illegal, just full of illegal actions, really, that this therapist was. I'm just so sorry that you had to encounter that at all and deal with any of their garbage. It's like they never attended any schooling. I don't even know. I, I don't. There's no explanation. I don't condone this behavior. It's terrible. And they shouldn't have their license. The very least, it should be suspended so they can retake law and ethics and understand how confidentiality works. But also, it's just frustrating, you guys. But I think they should probably lose their license because that just seems crazy. Yeah. Anyway, those are my thoughts. And I think group therapy might be the best way. And even just processing it on your own, journaling about how it made you feel, what came up for you and yeah just letting yourself feel it and i'm sorry Ugh, i wish i could punch that therapist in the face for you okay and it gets better but yeah again group therapy i think might be that sneaky way in um okay the final question question number nine says katie can one sibling have problems while the others don't interesting question i'm a triplet Wow. Okay. Triplet. I haven't dealt with triplets in my practice, only twins. Um, and I off, And I feel so left out with all events that I've had to share with my other two siblings. Oh, yeah. That's very common. We'll dig into that. Even though I had a hard enough time having family occasions because my one older brother molested me. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. I feel so stupid for caring so much about how I didn't want to do certain themes for our birthday. When I was always outvoted by the other two. Oh, yeah, fuck. There's three of you. Sucks. For example, our 16th birthday, my two siblings wanted a laser quest. Meanwhile, I didn't. Even the kind of cake that they wanted, chocolate. I wanted strawberry cake. Why didn't your parents split things up or do like three tiers? I don't understand. However, I was always outvoted. Plus, my household as a kid was so hectic. My dad was a drug addict who abused us kids physically and yelled and didn't care for our feelings. My mom didn't do anything to protect us. She would watch my dad hurt us right in front of her. So back to my earlier question, I'm the only triplet who has a mental disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and the other two do not have any mental disorders. How is that possible when we are triplets and we were raised in the prison house? Thank you for your answer to my question. You're an amazing person. Of course, happy to help. Now, we'll dig into the twins triplet thing in a second. But the real answer to this is that unfortunately, each and every one of us is born with a certain level of resilience. I talk about that actually in my book, Traumatized. It's available now anywhere. There's a, a whole chapter about resilience. And I talk about why why siblings can grow up in the same house, go through the same things and one can come out with PTSD and one doesn't. And we've heard this time and time again, right? One sibling will have like a, become a drug addict or really struggle in school or maybe go to prison and the other one's like fully functioning, doesn't have any issues in that way. Now, I would argue that your your other two siblings do have some struggles too. They just are stuffing them down and pretending everything is fine because everybody's really good at that as we know. Um but you're the one that's like openly struggling and being honest about it. But also there's the different levels of resilience and we're each born with a different amount. And yes, that sucks. But also what's amazing is the fact that we can do things to build it back up. We can take better care of ourselves. We can get into therapy. We can build our own friend support system that has nothing to do with our family. We can do all of this to build up that resilience zone so that we aren't so bothered by the things that happen in life because we have the tools, we have the support to move through it. Now, to get briefly into the triplet twin thing, it is really important for you. It's going to be important as an adult, but I'm sure as a kid, it was important too, but to have things that are just yours. And I don't know, you know, how old you are or if you're out of the house, I hope that you you are out of the house, um, but I think it will be really helpful for you to live on your own, not with either of your siblings to even if you have roommates, I'd want those roommates to be like friends or people that you know from school or work or whatever, Um Because you never felt like you had anything that was just yours and that lack of uh, privacy, independence, and uh, I don't even know, like it seems silly that your parents didn't take turns on like you get to decide this one, you get to decide on that, and then each of you gets a go. But having that independence and having that opportunity to do things on your own is going to be really key to your healing and, and really important as you move out of this so that we don't feel so suffocated by our our siblings because being a, a twin but being a triplet I mean it's just really hard to get any any time for ourselves and any feeling of I'm my own person right it might take you even a little bit longer than other people who aren't twin you know aren't triplets or twins or have you know siblings that are born at the same time but it might take us a little bit longer to figure out who we are right because we're always rolled into these other two people who are different people and it's like we don't even get that opportunity to develop our sense of self and who we are separate from other people. When most kids who, you know, were born just a single birth like me, like a child born at one time, just one, um, that we get the opportunity and you didn't. So those are just some of the thoughts that I have about it. And I would encourage you to to spend a little time getting to know you and figuring out what you like and don't like. And it sounds like you have a good idea of it. So that's really good. But giving yourself an opportunity to do the things you like and not asking other people for their permission or what they think, being a little bit independent and pushing and getting to do your own thing, I think will be really healing. But again, it's that resilience And we can go through things, you know, with our siblings and one comes out okay, and the others don't. And it's just because of that. But we can build it up. So don't give up hope. It can and will get better. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. I hope that this was helpful. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Each and every week, they're amazing. And I'm super grateful to all of you for sending them in and taking the time to write Um, If you're wondering where I get them, I get them on the community tab of my podcast channel. And the podcast channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the podcast that I do with my husband, Sean, but all of our podcasts live there. So you can find the community tab over there. And on Sunday mornings, I ask you for your questions. You can pop them in and I grab as many of them as I can. So have a wonderful rest of your week. Do something to build up that resilience. Be kind to yourself. I love you. And I will see you next time. Bye. you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.